0: Welcome to the Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary.
1: Welcome to the Table, where we discuss issues involving God and culture. And today we're looking at biblical passages related to same-sex sexuality. These are the passages that come up in relationship to discussion of these issues, and some of them are debated. And so we thought it would be good to dedicate an entire podcast to working through passages both in the Old and New Testaments that touch on these themes. And we actually have uh, a way into this conversation by something that has been produced recently in the culture. Within the last year, there is a Bible that is called the Queen James bible. Now you heard that right. That was not King James, that was Queen James. I remember telling my wife about this and thinking about doing this podcast and she says, "You've got to be joking." And her and my response was, "No, I'm actually very serious. There is a group that sat down with the with the King James uh, scripture and worked their way through uh, eight passages, we'll be discussing more than that uh, today, but eight passages that they altered in light of what they claim is the proper way to render these texts. And so we thought this is a great way uh, into discussing uh, this material. Let me uh, give you uh, uh, the introduction to this um, to this Bible and what it has to say. And uh, you should be seeing a uh, picture of it on your screen, and it says, uh, Homosexuality was first mentioned in the Bible in 1946, uh, the Revised Standard Version, in the Revised Standard Version. And uh, so it talks about the mention of uh, LGBT uh, Bible interpretations, and it says the Queen James Bible uh, seeks to resolve interpretive ambiguity in the Bible as it pertains to homosexuality. So that is the way in. Even beyond that, it goes on to discuss who is Queen James, and of course it's King James, but King James did have a reputation for having... uh, same-sex relationships, and so he was nicknamed Queen James. So there actually is a historical element to the background of this uh, that most people um, are not aware of. And so they called uh, this version, which was released last year in 2012, uh, the Queen James Bible. So we're going to work our way through uh, some of the texts that they discussed, plus a few others that often come up in this conversation. Let me introduce our panel of of experts that we've assembled to, to have this discussion. Uh, over to my far right is uh, Dr. Robert Chisholm, uh, who I'll be referring to him as Bob probably during the broadcast, and he is our department chair of Old Testament Studies here at Dallas Theological Seminary. And you've Taught here, what, 30, 30 32 years? years? 32 years. All right, so uh, he's got me by one. Uh, and then um, and then to my immediate right is Dr. Joe Fanton, who is a professor in the New Testament Studies Department. I, of course, teach in the New Testament Studies Department as well as being uh, Executive Director for Cultural Engagement at the Howard G. Hendricks Center for Christian Leadership and Cultural Engagement. And then finally, over here to my left is Jay Smith. Who uh, who also teaches in the New Testament department? Jay, how long have you? Been teaching here. Yeah, it's like 16 or 17 years. Yeah, he, I can't. He, he I, got, he, he, you don't ask him his birthday either. He doesn't know how old he is. Yeah, so <laughs> this numerical things kind of throw me. <laughs> yeah. so, um, and, and Joe, how long have you been? Uh, this is my tenth. This is the tenth year. Okay, so so this is this. We're a group that has been together. Although I don't think we've ever sat around the table to discuss what we're about mm-hmm. uh, to discuss in any detail. So I'm actually looking forward uh, to doing this. <laughs> Well, let's uh, launch in. The first passage we're going to discuss is not on the Queen James Bible list. It's a passage that does sometimes come up, however, and that's uh, Genesis 9. This is a passage in which um, Ham is said to uncover his father's nakedness. It's uh, Genesis nine twenty to 27, and Bob, why don't you take us through uh, the important parts of what's going on in this passage?
0: Well Noah is, uh, uh, has a vineyard, and Noah gets drunk, and it says that he uncovered himself inside his tent. People sometimes do things they regret when they're drunk. Mm-hmm. And Noah apparently uh, unclothed himself and was lying there exposed. And then his son Ham, uh, actually it doesn't say that he uncovered his father's nakedness. he saw his father's nakedness. Mm-hmm. And then he went and told his brothers about this. And Shem and Japheth took a garment, placed it on their shoulders, walked in backward so that they would not see their father's nakedness, and they uh, covered him up. And when he awoke, verse 24, he learned what his youngest son had done to him. And then he pronounces a curse, not on Ham, but on one of Ham's sons, Canaan. So this is really, in the larger context of the story, explaining something about the nature of the Canaanites and their origins and and that sort of thing. We call
1: that an etiology.
0: That's right.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, But in the early seventies, there were some interpretations that came along about this incident where they saw Ham as doing more than just seeing his father. I think the traditional reading of the text and the one that I would still support is that Ham looked at his father, and in this culture, whether he intended to do that or not, some will say it's voyeurism, Mm -hmm. um, that he was getting a kick out of this or Mm -hmm. something, but uh, some will say that, but it may have just been unintentional. But this is a culture where honor, shame are really important, and so it would be humiliating for a father to be seen in this condition by his son. And, And I think that the traditional view is supported by what the brothers do, they walk in backward Mm -hmm. to make sure they don't see him. So I think see is being used in a rather literal way here. Um, But some have suggested that he did more than that Mm -hmm. because over in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 17, it talks about if a man has sexual intercourse with his sister, whether the daughter of his father or his mother, so that he sees her nakedness and she sees his nakedness, it it is a disgrace. There, there's there's some kind of sexual contact that's involved, and the "c" is is idiomatic. It it's means a more euphemism. than that, right. right? It's a euphemism. Yeah. But I don't believe the same thing is going on in the Genesis uh, passage, and they'll also argue that verse 24, where it says, "When he found out what his youngest son had done, mm-hmm. that to do something involves more than just seeing and telling." I don't think that's the case. I think it's uh, the verb is can cover just seeing and telling. Uh, The Net Bible, by the way, which I'm referring to here, has an excellent note on this uh, for chapter 9, verse 22, and then another one attached to verse 24. So I would recommend that readers uh, look at the Net Bible, which can be
1: accessed through uh, Mm Bible.org online. Great. Uh, So this is a passage that, although sometimes it ends up in the database of passages to be discussed, really, in some ways, doesn't belong in this conversation. Which may explain why the Queen James Bible uh, didn't do anything with it.
0: Right. And even if it were some kind of homosexual contact, it's viewed very negatively, I think, in in this. uh, But yeah, I don't think that's what happened at all. What What did he do that was so negative, though, Bob? Is it that he didn't? he cover his father? He, he probably should have covered him up, yeah. but the fact that he just saw him seems to have been uh, considered inappropriate. Yeah. We're not sure. See, we don't know his motives. Some people yeah. refer to this, as I said, as voyeurism, but I'm not so sure the text really implies that or states it. It just says he saw him and then he told his brothers. Some will say that he should have covered him
1: up and kept it quiet, yeah. he didn't need to go tell his brothers. It it, it might be said, uh, just as an aside, that some of the principles of modesty that we see developed in Judeo Christian contexts come from texts like this. Mm -hmm. Would that be fair?
0: Yes. Yes.
1: All right. Well, that's our first passage. Uh, uh, That one isn't on the list, but the next one is. Um, This is Genesis uh, 19. This is the discussion of what took place at Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, the editor's notes on the gay Bible discuss this text and uh, treat, uh, treat the issues here. This is a passage where, um, where Lot encounters um, some visitors and they want to um, – Euphemistically, engage. Uh, no, in e- the language of the no, text. No, in the language yeah, of the yeah, text, yeah, that's right. And and then there's dispute about exactly how this text works in this conversation. Um, uh, I'll just read a portion of this text I am reading from the Net Bible. Uh, it says. Um, Before they could lie down to sleep, all the men, both young and old, from every part of the city of Sodom surrounded the house. They shouted to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? bring them out so that we can and I take it this is know them yes, um, yes. Um, I've changed the the net actually has so we can have sex with them but it is a euphemism in mm-hmm. this in this case
0: um, the following context makes but, that clear they they're not just asking we would like to meet these fellows and say hi to them yeah. no there's more going on yeah. than that as you can see in the following verses
1: and so the text goes on in verse 6 lot went outside to them shutting the door behind him he said no my brothers don't act so wickedly look I have two daughters daughters who have never had sexual relations with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do to them whatever you please, only don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof." So we have a hospitality issue going on on the one hand, and we have this um, expressed desire to. To have a forcible sexual encounter with these other men, and Lot, and this is shocking, but it shows the nature of the conflict, is Lot's willing to uh, have his daughters take the place of these men rather than to allow the men to go through this? That's the background. Uh, Bob, what more can we can we know about this text?
0: Well, some will argue that this is not a so much a sexual issue as it is a hospitality issue, and they will point to the fact that he offers the daughters. And it's inappropriate for visitors to be treated this way, and so he's offering his daughters before he allows that to happen. And it is a hospitality issue. It is more than a sexual issue, but I would argue that it's that's a false dichotomy. To say, well, it's a hospitality issue and therefore it's not a sexual issue. I think is to miss the point of what's going on here. Um, It's I think an ancient Israelite reader reading this in the larger context of the canon in light of some passages in Leviticus, which we will get to, Mm -hmm. would look at this and say this is horrible treating visitors this way. Mm -hmm. It's especially horrible (laughs) treating visitors this way when you want to do this to them Mm -hmm. because they would be assuming that. Um, This same-sex relationship is wrong from Leviticus, and it's especially wrong when you try to treat uh, visitors this way. Uh, So I think that's a false dichotomy, hospitality versus uh, sex. Then the other issue that comes up is what is their motive for having sex with these individuals? Are they just motivated by homosexual lust Mm -hmm. or or sexual lust, we could say? Mm -hmm. Uh, or are they trying to humiliate the visitors? Um, and I think, again, it it may be a little bit of both. Lot's response where he offers them the women would suggest that there is a sexual lust aspect to this. But there may, may very well be an attempt to humiliate these people, a, a power rape, as it were. Um, so I'm, I'm not so sure about that. Now, there is a passage in Judges 19,
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, which you could – called Sodom and Gomorrah Revisited, where the Levite comes to an Israelite town, Givah or Gibeah, and the same scenario unfolds. Uh, And the men of the town come and want to rape the Levite. And he sends his concubine out to them, and they rape her. And so some will say, well in the Judges 19, it's, they just have no respect for religious authority. They want to humiliate this Levite. It shows the depths, the moral depths of Israel at this time. That may be so. Mm-hmm. That, that may be part of what's going on. But again, I think it's a false dichotomy mm-hmm. to pit hospitality versus sexuality. They, the fact is they do rape the concubine. Uh, now, that may be, well, if we can't get at him, we can humiliate him by raping his concubine. That may be involved, but again, an ancient Israelite would look at this and say, oh, not only, not only do they show lack of respect for these people, and not only are they inhospitable, but they treat him this way, which we know is an abomination, according to Leviticus. Mm-hmm. So it's not an either-or, it's a both-and. You know, and it's interesting, in Second Samuel, in the account of Tamar's rape, there's further literary allusion, uh, allusion to this, and that's a heterosexual rape in that case. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's interesting that that's, that's not homosexual, but it makes an allusion to this. And mm-hmm. so what we have are two cases, uh, two different types of sexual offense. Uh, one homosexual, one heterosexual.
1: But it is fair to say that because we've got a, a forced sexuality situation going on, that this is actually a complicated passage. Yes, it is. Uh, it, it's not uh, it's not a, a cut and dried situation by exactly. any means. That, that's right. Uh,
0: I'll acknowledge that, mm-hmm. and I think the the note in the Bible that you referred to brings this issue up, and and it's a legitimate issue to raise. It is more complicated.
1: Okay. That's Genesis 19. Uh, Let's turn our attention to the two texts of the Old Testament that probably get the most discussion because in most people's view they're the most direct. Uh, references to this kind of a situation, and this is Leviticus 18.22 and Leviticus 20.13. And I don't know if uh, we have the editor's notes up on the screen, but if we could get uh, to those uh, so that people can see uh, what the webpage is saying about the passage, uh, that will uh, help us as we talk about these passages. Um, The First editor's note that you see there um, deals with the Genesis 19 passage as we scroll down the page you'll see uh, the discussion start to come up as they talk about what they changed. They only changed eight passages in the entire Bible. Uh, everything else is is what you're familiar with. So uh, it kind of shows the, the scope of what we're dealing with. And if we work our way down, you'll see that they begin to discuss the individual passages. So John, uh, sorry, Genesis 19:5, uh, it begins with the citation of the King James, and then they go through their explanation of how they handle that passage and what the the QJV, a new abbreviation, uh, renders for it. And now we come to Leviticus 20:13. Uh, this is a uh, very important text, and so I am going to read this editor's note. It says um, Leviticus is outdated as a moral code. You can tell the passage makes them nervous. Uh, but we still uh, picked it uh, as our most important book uh, to address uh, in our edits. So most anti-LGBT religious activists Cite Leviticus 1822 and 2013 as proof positive that homosexuality is a sin and even worse is punishable by death. So that introduces us to the fact that this is uh, a passage that many people do read. Uh, in a direct way, so let's let's address that question first, and then we'll come back to the notes and see how they handle it. Um, what is this passage doing in Leviticus eighteen? Well, these passages in Leviticus eighteen twenty-two and in Leviticus twenty-thirteen.
0: Well, Leviticus eighteen is a warning to Israel. The notes suggest that this was a guide just for priests. If I'm reading the note in in the Bible correctly, that uh, this version that you we have up here. But if you go back to the beginning of the chapter, speak to the Israelites and tell them. Mm-hmm. And so this this is material that is for all Israel, not just priests.
1: So it's not a cultically limited text. That exactly.
0: Okay. And if you go to the end of the chapter, uh, verse uh, uh, twenty four, don't defile yourselves with with any of these things. For the nations which I am about to drive out before you have been defiled with all these things. The land has become unclean. The kind of activities described in this chapter were practiced by the Canaanites, and as far as the Lord is concerned, those practices have defiled the very land. It's become unclean, and I have brought the punishment for its iniquity upon it so that the land has vomited out its inhabitants. And he makes the point that if you repeat these offenses, the same thing will happen to you. So you can see this is broadly for Israel, and I, quite frankly, when I'm talking about the whole issue of Canaanite genocide, just as a little bit of a sidebar, mm-hmm. this is a really important passage mm-hmm. because it gives us insight into why the Lord felt that this culture needed to be exterminated, Yes, and that's a topic for another day, I know, that's but it's right. a very important, it's yeah. very important passage. It's very important passage. It's as if the Lord is saying, their their time is up, the Lord had given them Um, uh, ample uh, time, and they'd failed. So this is a warning to Israel, and the bulk of the chapter involves crossing sexual boundaries. Maybe we'll talk later about Jesus' statement when he's asked by the Jewish leaders uh, about divorce and remarriage, and he goes back to Genesis 2, and he quotes the text in its Uh, an alternative form there, the two will become one. Mm -hmm. He talks about man and woman, and the two will become, kind of rules out polygamy Mm -hmm. and any other option, really. And this is a chapter that describes the crossing of sexual boundaries.
3: This episode is brought to you by the Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like,
1: If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. So when we look at this in context, and let me just read uh, 1822 so that people can get the text in, in mind that we're talking about, it mm-hmm. says, you must not have sexual intercourse with a male as one has sexual intercourse with a woman. It is a detestable act. There are a couple of observations to make here right off the bat, and that is, first of all, the, the code is presented from a male point of view. This is very common mm-hmm. in the culture. In fact, um, finding texts anywhere are often in the ancient world that deal with with uh, women in this light are, is pretty rare because mm-hmm. because of how common this is to always approach it from the from the male right. uh, perspective so that's the first thing to notice and the second thing to notice is that there are all kinds of other sexual acts that surround this text even though the verse before and this is the point that the right. Queen James <laughs> Bible is going to make is going to be you must not give any of your children as an offering to molech so that you do not profane the name of your God the the verse before before is about child sacrifice that happened in, in pagan temple context. But uh, but most of the rest of the chapter is about various forms of sexual intercourse. Verse 19, you must not approach a woman in her menstrual impurity to have sexual intercourse with her. Verse 20, you must not have sexual intercourse with the wife of your fellow citizen to become unclean with her. Verse 23, the verse right after the verse that we're discussing, you must not have sexual intercourse with any animal to become defiled with it and a woman must not stand before an animal to have sexual intercourse with it it is a perversion. So the the we are in a code that is dealing with sexual practices, is that correct?
0: Verses six through eighteen as well, we Mm -hmm. we could talk about. So yes, but the 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 Queen James note attempts to interpret limit verse twenty two to cultic, some kind of cultic practice involving male prostitutes. Uh, which the language of the text doesn't specifically indicate that, because they try to relate it to the Molech worship, which involved child sacrifice, uh, in verse 20, 21. So they're trying to ex- explain verse 22 in light of 21, limit it to cult prostitution, uh, which was had a homosexual uh, dimension, and in fact, in 1 Kings 14:24, uh, there's a reference to this. There were also male cultic prostitutes in the land. They committed the same horrible sins as the nations that the Lord had driven out from before the Israelites, and it's related to idolatry. And so that kind of thing was going on in Israel, but I don't believe that in this context uh, you, can, you can make that connection. You'd have to show me that this Molech worship that's in view here, which is typically associated with child sacrifice, uh, is, has some kind of male cult prostitute dimension to it. But furthermore, as you said, the broader context of the passage is just talking about sexual boundaries and the focus is on the Canaanites' practices in general. Mm -hmm. And so I think Molech worship would would have just horrified uh, Israelites, oh, offering your children. And then verse 22 is right in there with it. Mm -hmm. And so I, I don't think that verse 21 limits verse 22. These are just examples throughout the chapter of what the Canaanites were doing. That had brought them to the point where God was ready to eliminate them.
1: Now, the key term in this passage uh, is the idea of this is an abomination. It's a way of toeva. Toeva. That's right. Uh, the Net Bible de- uh, translates this as a detestable act. Um, the the Queen James Bible tries to soften this to a certain degree and make it um, basically say taboo. It's like a slap on the wrist, if I can uh, say it that way, as opposed to something uh, more serious. How should we view that term?
0: However, whatever gloss you want
1: to use to translate it,
0: even if you want to use taboo, this is serious stuff. This is very serious stuff, because look at verses 24 and following, Uh, these actions are so serious that from God's perspective, they justify eliminating a society from the face of the earth. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's what a a toeva is, let's not water it down. This Mm -hmm. is repulsive to God. Uh, serious business uh, that justifies this very harsh judgment that he was ready to bring upon these people. And he says the land has been defiled by these kinds of actions. And even if you want to say, well, Toa Vaz just used a few times on the specifics, in those later verses it characterizes all of these actions as uh, being uh, of this nature.
4: Now
1: another question that often comes up in relation to this passage, and I've alluded to this by citing the context, is the scope of what is prohibited here and seen as yeah. a detestable in one way or another includes something as basic, if I can say it that way, as, as approaching a woman who's, who's menstruating. So, um, uh, how do we how do we view that act in relationship to the list that comes later? Should we make a distinction between uh, the first verse, which is simply descriptive and doesn't put a put any kind of a sanction, I guess, on what's being said? You come to the next one, and it says um, that you become unclean if you do the act of verse twenty. This is the wife of your fellow citizen, but if you Um, uh, You profane the name of the Lord if you engage in child sacrifice, but you commit an abomination if you have uh, sexual intercourse with a male. Is that an observation worth making as we move through this list? That uh, that what is attached to each act is put in a slightly separate category as we move along.
0: Yeah. Then in verse twenty-three, there's a, a even different word that's used, um, which is not as common, and it's translated perversion. Mm-hmm. So there may be an escalation here. They're all wrong. Uh-huh. They're all violations, but there may be an escalation of sorts.
1: Because in the law, there are violations, yes. and then there are violations. There are violations that's yeah. Right. Exactly.
0: And and some people will look at verse nineteen in particular and say, well, that doesn't sound so bad. Yeah. And and therefore they'll maybe try to question the relevance of everything here. We we wouldn't think that was wrong. Right. In, in the in the way they did, but I think that's wrong to look at that one verse and then say, well, the other things may not be so wrong either. No. From the ancient Israelite perspective, verse 19 would be serious business. We can't impose our modern attitude on that,
1: and that has to do with the ancient attitude towards blood, blood it? And,
0: and cleanness. If you go yeah. back to chapter 15, you get the female bodily discharge section there in chapter 15, mm-hmm. and um, this this menstruation issues are uh, are mentioned there as well. And so again, yeah, this would be. Um, More serious for them than it would be for us. But I think that's an excellent point, Daryl, that there may be some escalation Mm -hmm. here as these
2: uh, illustrations are being uh, used. Yeah. Do we also, though, need to think through the purity codes and things like that? Uh, These ancient peoples would have had, uh, you know, separate purity codes, and some of these things might have seemed, uh, you know, to us may not seem so bad, but in those cases, like you said, uh, they would have made a huge distinction, what's pure and what's impure. Oh yeah. And, um,
0: like you say, go back to Chapter 15 where the male discharges, the female discharges, and it actually refers there to a man having sexual intercourse with a woman so that her menstrual impurity touches him. Mm-hmm. How does that relate to mm-hmm. Chapter yeah. uh, 18, verse 19 where mm-hmm. it seems to be more serious? And I think some would interpret 1524 as. If she begins to have her period mm-hmm. while they are mm-hmm. having intercourse, mm-hmm. that's what that's referring to. Whereas mm-hmm. chapter eighteen is talking about a more deliberate mm-hmm. um, sort of a action. Ah. Yeah, I'm trying to be delicate here, right? I understand.
1: <laughs> well, I I, I I think it's important to to understand that there are several things that are happening in these passages all at once. Mm-hmm. We've got cultural factors. We've got uh, if we want to think about it, there are, there are, and these cultural factors are. Um, impinging on some of what is said is going on at a moral level. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, it isn't just a matter of reading the text saying I've got an action and boom, that, that takes care of the text. That's what I, what I think it's important to be sensitive yeah. to as we have these conversations about these texts.
0: But I think it, it, there, there is a cultural dimension, mm-hmm. but I think we need to remember these are not just taboos for priests. These are Canaanite practices that, in the sight of God, were serious enough that He would tell Israel, Wipe out this society, man, woman, and child. Mm -hmm. Topic for another day. Right. But it shows that God is not pleased with this kind of activity, and the land has vomited them out.
1: Right. So. So and, and really, that's the point. The point is that Israel is supposed to be a different kind of people. Yeah. They're supposed to live in a different kind of way. Their practices are supposed to be distinctive. Uh, we could use the term "set apart." We could even use more religious language, "sanctified." Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're to be
4: they're to have a distinct quality in terms of of yeah. who they are. Okay, that's look. Well, uh, if I jump in here, you know, in the in the uh, parallel and. Twenty, chapter twenty, verse thirteen. That's actually where we're going. Next. Okay. All right. Yeah, well, well i us just say that the the uh, penalty here is death. Mm-hmm. So this is not uh, to be taken lightly.
0: Right. And in chapter twenty, it's in a list of again crossing sexual boundaries, and there's no connection with the molech uh, in chapter twenty, verse thirteen. It's clearly. Uh, of a sexual nature there there's no question of a molec uh, involvement as far as i can see in chapter 20 so i think you have to interpret 1822 in light of 2013 13. and uh, very good point it's this is serious enough that it's a capital offense in the yeah, sight of is, god
4: this is this is a taboo I'm, you know this would, <laughs> it's a pretty serious thing. capital tab- t right. yeah. it's a capital <laughs> t taboo yeah.
0: and we are and we are not their molech is earlier in the chapter right. for sure but again we are not just talking about priestly rules because you are to say to the israelites any man from the israelites or from foreigners who reside in israel who gives his children to molech and then uh, it goes on and so it seems like the chapter has a broader context than
1: just priestly rules. Okay, let me let me read Leviticus twenty and again put in context in it because it brings in some of the themes that we've already talked about. I'm going to start in verse seven. You must sanctify yourselves and be holy, because mm-hmm. I am the Lord your God. That's the point. You're to have a distinct lifestyle and live in a way that's different from the nations around you. You must be sure to obey my statutes. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Verse nine. If anyone curses his father and his mother, he must be put to death. He has cursed his father and mother, his blood guilt is on himself. If a man commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, both the adulterer and adulteress must be put to death. If a man has sexual intercourse with his father's wife, he has exposed his father's nakedness. Both of them must be put to their de- blood guilt is on themselves. If a man has sexual intercourse with his daughter-in-law, both of them must be put to death, they have committed perversion, their blood guilt is on themselves. If a man has sexual intercourse with a male as one has sexual intercourse with a woman, the two of them have committed an abomination. They must be put to death. Their blood guilt is on themselves. If a man has sexual intercourse with both a woman and her mother, it is lewdness. Mm -hmm. Both he and they must be burned to death. So there is no lewdness in your midst. And it goes on to talk about uh, sex with an animal, etc.
0: So both man and woman in this case. That's exactly verse 16. A woman approaches an animal.
1: Now this is a very strict code. There's no doubt about that, and it's a strict code covering a variety of offenses. That's also important to note. We aren't just highlighting one thing here. There's a there's a set apartness in Israel for holiness that runs across a whole gamut of actions, uh, but uh, one can read this and say, "This is pretty. This is a pretty serious uh, list of violations that we're talking about."
0: Yes, and tucked right in there in verse 13 is this same-sex uh, violation. But it is important, and I think you alluded to this: is that we're we're not picking on on that. Right. There are all of these other boundary crossings mm-hmm. in, in, in the area of sexuality are also wrong and they're going to be
1: uh, treated um, very harshly so this term that we've translated um, as um, as abomination is this toeva term again it's the same term that we saw in Leviticus 18 mm-hmm. so um, so if you were to summarize where where um, Moses uh, takes us in the Torah uh, on this issue, uh, what what kind of a summary would you give us? That God expects His people to
0: be holy. Mm-hmm. Um, they are to reject the practices of the Canaanites that are described here, so many of which involved crossing sexual boundaries, mm-hmm. whether it be incest, bestiality, same sex, uh, and He is warning Israel that if they violate uh, God's command in this regard. They, like the Canaanites, will forfeit their place in the land. They need to be a holy people, set apart.
1: And this is a way of communicating an intense offense to God in terms of the way He has created people to live.
0: That's right. This transcends culture. It's got a cultural dimension to it, but it transcends culture. It's not limited to priests. Uh, and it's uh, God is upset by these things. He has uh, created human beings to function in a certain way sexually. Jesus refers to this later. And he is upset when they violate the design. They need to stick to the owner's uh, manual provided by the uh, creator.
1: (laughs) Now, we have one other text that we want to discuss. It's not listed in the uh, Queen James Bible, but it is a part of the conversation that sometimes comes up. And this is the relationship uh, between Jonathan and David, which is sometimes alluded to have uh, been more than a friendship. Yeah. So uh, I'll just let you deal with that in, in general and uh, how, how should we look at, at the way in which this relationship is handled?
0: Uh, well David and Jonathan were very good friends. Uh, Jonathan saw that David was going to succeed his own father Saul and he committed himself to David as the future king of Israel. In the story, Jonathan is a foil for Saul. Saul resists God's decision, uh, refuses to own up to his own failure, and tries to kill David. Jonathan, though, shows this is the way you should respond to God's chosen king. That's the larger context. Jonathan, of course, tragically dies with Saul in battle. And then in 2 Samuel one twenty-six, David is writing a lament for both of them. And he says in verse 26, I grieve over you, my brother Jonathan. You were very dear to me. Your love was more special to me than the love of women. And some will interpret that as, see, David had a same-sex relationship with Jonathan that meant more to him than any of his relationships with women. And David, of course, had many such relationships that are described uh, in these pages. But I think the assumption there is that love is being used the same way with respect to Jonathan as it is the women. I don't think that's what's in view. I think David is saying, Jonathan's loyal love to me was greater than anything I experienced with any women. And you see this if you go back to Chapter 18 of 1 Samuel. When David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan and David became bound together in close friendship. Jonathan loved David as much as he did his own life. And, uh, and then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as much as he did his own life. And he took off his robe and he gave it to David along with uh, some of his military equipment. And in the ancient Near East, sometimes in covenant context, the word love is used for loyalty between parties. Mm-hmm. That's what's going on here. That's the loyalty uh, that's in view. And as you read through the story, there are times when Jonathan helps David escape and he, yeah. he comes and visits him in an hour of need and assures him that God is going to see him through this. And so Jonathan demonstrates this loyal love to David. and. That's what David is referring to. He's not suggesting that it's the same kind of love. Love is very broad in its reference in Hebrew. It's it's kind of a wordplay that David is developing there. Where uh, Jonathan's loyalty to me, I never found that from women. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it it's in, in as I look back that that's more satisfying to me than the pure
2: purely physical love that I had with uh, that I've had with women. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd like to. I think um, <clears throat> a good uh, comparison here would be the Homeric material, mm. which if we actually date, I mean, we're talking a bit of a distance, but when you talk mm-hmm. about the ancient world, not that big of a difference. Homer has really no explicit discussion or example of any type of homoerotic uh, um, experience by anyone there. Of course, you have uh, Achilles with Petroleum, uh but <clears throat> there's nothing explicit there. And just like the Old Testament, it seems like there's no real resistance to these authors to make it clear what's going on. Sure, they use euphemisms in various places, but uh, they also make those euphemisms clear at times. And uh, uh, again, um, this could be later interpretations reading it back into the text. Mm-hmm. There's nothing explicit in the Homer material, just like it doesn't seem like there's anything specific in the Samuel material.
0: No, I think that it's just a very superficial understanding of love and a failure to really appreciate what's going on in First Samuel eighteen and the ancient Near Eastern background for that kind yeah. of language which is being reflected in Second Samuel one twenty six. He's referring back to that that text and that experience. Yeah. You know.
1: Well, that that kind of completes our survey of the Old Testament. So, Bob, you're off the hook now. <laughs> uh, uh, let's turn our attention to uh, to the New Testament, and here it's interesting. I think the place to begin is kind of in a in a in a space that might be a vacuum, and that is. Uh, most people when they engage in this discussion say well Jesus didn't say anything about any of this um, you know uh, this is a, the text that we're going to be looking at come from Paul uh, there's going to be one text we'll uh, discuss that comes out of Jude that looks back on the on the Sodom incident in a generalized kind of way but really uh, Jesus himself never addressed this and so that is often used as a kind of uh, uh, Way of saying this is not such a big deal that the the church has made far more out of it than ought to be, uh, than ought to be made of it. Um, so, uh, gentlemen, uh, uh, how do you how do you respond to someone who starts there that Jesus didn't say anything about this and so uh,
4: didn't or wouldn't have had any objections? Well, I he, I think you're right. He doesn't say anything explicitly about it. Um, and I doubt if he has many opportunities to in first century Israel to address same sex relationships. So that he doesn't say anything positive or negative explicitly isn't is hardly surprising. Yeah. But what he does say about marriage and divorce uh, is fairly exclusive. It's <laughs> one man, one woman, uh, intended for life. There doesn't seem to be uh, any other viewpoint that he has or holds or. Proposes now, in some sense, that's an argument for silence. But in, in a sense, it's sen-
1: not as silent as Jesus saying nothing. About yeah, the if, topic. yeah.
4: Well, if, if an
0: Old Testament guy can jump in here, yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in Matthew nineteen four, he he actually goes with an alternative reading. The the traditional Hebrew text just says, "and they will become one flesh." He goes with that alternative reading: the two of them will become one flesh. It seems like he's really stressing. Um, that, as the model, maybe with more of a polygamous uh, kind of thing in Could mind mm-hmm. with involving you know divorce uh, and remarriage, but that that 's pretty exclusive,
4: yeah
1: yeah with all kinds of implications <laughs> so so what we get is we get a definition of what marriage is yes. here, but we don't get a direct address of 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 same-sex relationships, Jesus doesn't
4: deal with that topic no. explicitly. directly. I think That's very right. implicitly yeah. he does. That's right. Uh, but again, he doesn't have much of an opportunity uh, in first-century Israel. I don't think to address such an issue. But he does reaffirm a very traditional understanding of marriage: one man, one woman for life.